Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm your coach, Angela Pugh. I want to talk about something today that is near and dear to my heart. And if you aren't already thinking about this in your life and finding solutions, you'll want to start after this conversation. I know this is a huge issue, not only in recovery, but for everyone. They say 63% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And most of us don't even have the know-how, the skills, or the confidence to not only get out of debt, but to properly manage the money we do have. And this is something so frustrating to me because I feel like they should be teaching this to us our entire school lives. And nobody is teaching us about money and how to do it and how to do it well. And when I tell you I speak from experience on this topic, I absolutely do. Your girl has spent a whole lot of her adult life in a financial mess. And you know how I tell you that I've made almost all the mistakes? Well, this is another one. I had so many unhealthy emotional attachments to money that I caused myself years of heartache and chaos and struggles from total avoidance, trying to pretend it's not happening to just plain irresponsibility, overspending on shopping and drinking, of course, when I was still a drinking person. And I would do all of that instead of taking care of my bills. I literally was still getting my utilities shut off in my adulthood just because I didn't pay it. Not even because I didn't have the money, but I just didn't want to give it to them. <laughs> I had a car repossessed when I was two years sober, have always had tax debt and issues and student loan debts, and never, ever had any savings to speak of. And it finally dawned on me that these money issues were bigger than just being irresponsible. It was deep-seated fear and financial insecurity and anxiety around money and constant fear of running out or not having enough. And you pair all of that with the shame and embarrassment of not having good credit and feeling like I couldn't really take care of myself, and I fell apart. I buried my head in the sand and continued to avoid it as long as possible. And it literally affected every area of my life, right? Jobs, how I lived, dating, keeping secrets, never letting friends get too close because I didn't want them to know too much. It affected how I interacted with my family because I didn't want them to know how I was a loser in yet another way, right? <laughs> like it was a lot and it was all emotional. So when I came across my guest today, she got my attention immediately. She's a financial coach, and she really gets that emotional attachment to money and how powerful it is in both negative and positive ways. And we're going to talk about some practical money management strategies, some emotional connections to money, understanding your relationship with money, how it motivates you, how it gives you anxiety. And I cannot wait to get into this conversation because I know I'm going to learn a ton and I know you will too. 
So let's welcome Sarah Roller to the show. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and doing this podcast with me. I cannot wait to hear everything you have to say about this. Hi, Angela. I'm thrilled to be here. So why don't we start with just take a minute and tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do. So I am a financial coach, which is not something that most people have heard of. Basically, I help people with kind of the day-to-day side of money management. Unlike a financial advisor, which is something most people are familiar with, a financial advisor typically helps people with long-term investing strategies, retirement planning. All of that is wonderful. We all need support with that. But for a lot of my clients, they're not quite ready to jump into that long-term planning. They're really struggling with a system to get bills paid on time, getting out of that uh, paycheck to paycheck cycle, figuring out how to tackle their debt, or even just open their credit card statements. Those are all things that a lot of my clients are struggling with. So it's blending the kind of practical of setting up systems that are effective for you, but also dealing with the emotional side. You talked a little bit about that kind of money avoidance and just feeling insecure with how you're handling your money being afraid to talk about it with friends or family. Um, You know, money is such a taboo topic that we just don't get the benefit of learning from our peers, our family, uh, for the most part. So having someone like myself that they can talk about it, that they can be open with um, is kind of the goal of what I'm I'm doing with my clients. Yeah, I love that. And it is so hard. Like I know when they talk about credit, And, you know, the first thing when you want to rebuild your credit is to get your, to get a copy of your credit. And that is so terrifying and humiliating when you're in a position that that thing doesn't look good. You know, I mean, it just feels awful. It's like, that's the last thing I want to look at. It's like the proof in an itemized fashion of how irresponsible and dysfunctional I was, you know? And even just knowing where do you get it? There's quite a few websites that are not necessarily scams, but trying to get you to sign up and you have to put your credit card information. And before you know it, you've been, you know, auto subscribed to um, some subscription for it. And just even understanding how to get it, let alone, what do I do with this information that I don't feel good about? So what was it for you that got you into this niche market? I have always been fairly good with money. It wasn't a personal, it wasn't a huge struggle for me. I grew up in a house that was fairly frugal and not that we talked a ton about money, but it was an open enough dialogue that it wasn't, you know, so off the table for me. I was able to, you know, kind of launch into early adulthood without making a ton of catastrophic mistakes. But then as I got into the workplace and saw my coworkers, particularly when there would be like, you know, that benefits talk and talking about setting up your 401k, I saw my coworkers who were really struggling, who were, oh, we're young, we don't need to worry about this. And when they said that at 23, that was one thing. But when I heard them saying it again at 30, 35, I'm like, okay, it's, you know, we're, we're phasing out of young. Um, so seeing how complicated and overwhelming and really how hard it was to kind of move past that and actually get started. Um, That was really kind of a light bulb moment for me. And as I mentioned, this wasn't super hard for me. I found it interesting. I kind of liked trying to optimize things. And I would sometimes give advice to some of my friends and coworkers, and then they wouldn't implement it. (laughs) And I'd be like, why, why are we not doing this? And um, I've always been 
interested in like psychology and what motivates people. So that's when I really kind of dove into, okay, even if you have the information, why do people not act in their best interest? And that's really where I realized, okay, this, this is something that people need. People who are not going to open up the personal finance book need a little bit more support walking through this. The people who may have a financially savvy person in their life who's giving them information and they are just ignoring it, they don't want to hear it, it is uncomfortable. Because when you have someone who's good at money telling you what to do with it, you're, you're okay, well, easy for you. You have a safety net. You have, you know, this This isn't crippling for you. Um, so yeah, just being able to help navigate that with people who are struggling, who are avoiding it and just feel like they're not good at money. That's a thing I heard a lot of my particularly free female friends say that I just feel like I'm not good at money. And that yeah. that mental mindset makes it so that even simple tasks or you know relatively simple tasks feel like they're out of reach for you. Yeah, for sure. And listen, what you described is that's how you know you're a real coach is when you're giving people the step-by-step and they just ignore it (laughs) and do whatever the hell they want. That's how you know you're a real coach. (laughs) It's hard. I grew up with a lot of stress and anxiety around money. And, and I've had different phases of life, right? When I was very, very young, we didn't have any money. Not like we couldn't eat and, you know, I was starving or malnourished. I mean, that wasn't my situation, but we definitely did not have any extra money, right? So I had that anxiety. And then later in life, a very different set of circumstances, still within my family unit, but uh, we had some illness and a lot of hospital bills and things like that. And money, there was more money coming in, but there was way more money going out. And money was always stressful and fear-ridden and angry. And, you know, so I took all of that, like just being scared to death of money. And I took that into my adult life. And exactly what you're saying, like you heard your female friends say, like, I just, I just wasn't good at money. Like I didn't really know what to do with it or even how to be responsible. Like you can think the most simple things, like you pay your bills and you pay them on time. Okay. But (laughs) what, what else do you do with it? Right. For me, I had so much fear of like running out or not having enough that I had this mindset of, I have to get what I want when I have money because I won't have the opportunity again, right? So it's all that scarcity and running out and not having enough really affected my life. Is this something you see regular? I know I see it regularly all the time in my clients and I'm sure in yours as well. Yeah. For people who grow up in a situation where money is scarce and that scarcity mindset gets hardwired into them, there tends to be two ways that people react to that. Either They think this was awful. I want to make sure as an adult that I'm never in this situation again. And they become incredibly frugal. They may also become, you know, high earners, but they are incredibly frugal. They don't want to save on anything unnecessary. They want to secure themselves as much as possible in a way that, I mean, you know, that sounds great, but can sometimes be debilitating that they don't even feel that they could spend even if they have ample money to do so. And then the other way that people tend to react is what sounds like was the case for you, where 
I don't know when I'm going to get access to money again. So anytime I do have any money in hand, I'm going to spend it on the things that I want because I may not get the opportunity to do that again. And that is a very typical um, way to approach it when you have grown up in that extremely scarce mindset. Yeah. So how do you start? I know for me, like I just had to start digging in. I had this realization several years ago that I have the ability to make money and be a high earner for sure. But somehow in all of these great stages of my life and my career and making all this money, somehow I always ended up back at zero. I always ended up back in that scarcity and fear and having nothing. And that's why it started to make sense to me. Like, this is a bigger issue. This isn't just about me being irresponsible. This There's something deeper at play. And I just started digging into money mindset. What does this mean? What is it? I heard people, I'm pretty woo-woo and I'm very law of attraction and manifesting and all those things. So I had heard this scarcity mindset mentioned a lot in my personal readings and belief system. And I just started digging into it. And that's how I started learning all of that. Like, what are some very base level starter steps people can take if they want to start getting better at this? Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that like you were acquiring money, but then kept ending up back at zero. And that's a that's a really common thing as well. Again, when you're hardwired in that situation of we don't have money. Of course you think, oh, I would love to have more money and that would be great and that would alleviate all of these painful moments and experiences, but there's something kind of comfortable in the familiar. So a lot of people unconsciously recreate that system, even if it's not amazing, it is known, It is there is some comfort in that. So it is fairly common, like if that is the experiences that you've dealt with before to kind of recreate that unintentionally. So again, that is uh, not that abnormal. Um, Yeah, I think for most people really just kind of, I mean, the, you know, when you're avoiding money, it is the last thing that you want to do, but kind of ripping off the bandaid and facing what is the actual situation getting really clear. A lot of my clients, um, the first thing that I, that we do together is to kind of Put together your net worth, which even the word net worth can be a little bit triggering because there is an association with self-worth. And so I try not to fixate on the net worth piece of it, but essentially trying to gather what are your assets? So what do you have in various checking accounts? What do you have? Do you own any property? Do you have any retirement accounts? And then what debts do you have, whether that's student loan debts, credit card debt, mortgage, car loan, anything like that. And we kind of put them all down on one piece of paper or in a spreadsheet and see like, what are the totals that we're looking at here? Now, obviously that's not always a happy picture, but in most cases with most of my clients who've really been avoiding it, it's actually not as bad as they had envisioned it in their minds. Yes, there is work to be done, but we can, you know, especially if you have a lot of credit card debt, we put it into a calculator and we can see, okay, if you can make you know, another $100 on top of the minimum payments for the foreseeable future, how long will that take you to pay off? And even if it's like seven years, for a lot of people, wait, there's an end in sight. This isn't an eternal like sentence that I have this credit card debt, knowing that it is something you can achieve can be really profound. So that's, I think the first step is just getting 
clear on what the reality of the situation is, not what you feel the the reality of the situation is, because that there's often a pretty huge disconnect there. Yeah. And we do function a lot on feeling, right? And so when you feel and it's bad or it's scary, I think most of us immediately want to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've had enough of that. And that and that's definitely something that you can do on your own. But I think especially for a lot of my highly avoidant clients, that's where having someone like me or even a, a friend, you know, or someone something like that that can just kind of hold your hand through it can be helpful to actually push through with facing that. How important do you feel having an actual budget is? Because this is another thing that you read about. Like they say, get a copy of your credit. And I'm like, no, thanks. I mean, I will now, but you know, years ago, like I, I definitely didn't want to do that. And it's the same thing. You want to start taking control of your finances and having a better understanding of it. The first thing you say is, well, let's do a budget. And I see these spreadsheets and I'm like, oh my gosh, no, like get that thing away from me. (laughs) You know, like, what is that? But it is it a part of this journey that is super important? And do you have to do it like every month to go through your budget? So I think we have an idea of what the word budget means. And it is very similar to the word diet. It is very restrictive. It is not fun. It is, you know, it's not... It, it, It's not great what most people think of when they think of the prospect of budgeting. When I think of budgeting, I think more about planning what you want to do with your money. So, you know, proactively deciding next month, I would love to have enough money to spend it in this way. If this is what I anticipate coming in, this is where I can, looking forward, decide where I want that to go. Now, it's never going to happen exactly the way you planned. There are going to be unexpected things. There are going to be, you know, impulses that you legitimately decide are are beneficial to your life. And that's totally fine. But I think it is beneficial to at least spend some time, you know, kind of proactively thinking about how you want to intentionally spend your money. In a really restrictive way, I don't think that that is beneficial for many people. Um, Sometimes in the short term, there can be an argument for that. If you are in a real crunch period and you need to be restrictive for a very temporary, you know, piece of time, sometimes that can work, but that's generally not how I approach money. Um, I think for most people, the first step is just to track your money, to just see where is my money going. And sometimes that can be really enlightening to see, oh, wow, I spend a lot more on Insert X category, whether that's groceries, shopping, eating out, coffee. I mean, those are all things that kind of get picked on a lot. But um, or even just, wow, my car payment is as much as we spend on groceries. Does that make sense in my life? And then you get to decide what to do with that data. Um, I think it's just really kind of enlightening to see where your money is going. And then you can start thinking about, is this how I want my money to be working for me. And if not, then we look at making changes from there. Yeah. I, I had never thought about it like in the same realm as, you know, the diet word, but you're right. It does, it does give that sense of restriction. And I think certainly for people with addiction, we, you fixate on what you're told you can't have. (laughs) We don't want to be told no, right? Like, I don't want to have to work on more self-control. And 
know? And this is something like that I am constantly practicing because it's so hard, right? It's just that self-discipline. And I do really like that you said you look at it more like tracking your money. Now, it is it is definitely a little frustrating when you start looking at your stuff and you see how much money you spend on coffee and eating out. I mean, I can look at my bank statement and I swear to you, 80% of what I spend is food, whether it's restaurants or a grocery store. But it was a huge moment for me also on the coffee realm because that is something that gets picked on a lot. But it's a habit that we develop that can be really costly and you don't realize. I mean, when I was young, we didn't spend six, seven, eight dollars a day on a coffee from the coffee shop. You know, that didn't exist. Like I can spend $10 so easily and $10 a day is $300 a month. That's a car payment. And I could blow through $10 in a day in a split second. That takes nothing, you know, but it adds up. Yeah. And I think we have, we have this kind of internalized sense of what is a good use of money or what's an appropriate use of money that comes from things we heard growing up, things we see our peers doing and getting a $5 cup of coffee is such a standard normal thing that that feels like that's an appropriate thing. That's not something I necessarily need to overanalyze. But then um, something like hiring a housekeeper, that's frivolous. That's that's something one could judge someone for. I could do that myself. There's no value in that. But if you were to cut out, if you were to just, I mean, if you're spending $300 a month on coffee, the coffee is probably adding some value. Absolutely. Is it adding the same value as spending $300 a month on a housekeeper to come twice a week or, you know, every other week for some people. No, I need that coffee. No questions for other people. I wait, if I just made coffee at home, I could have a housekeeper. Oh, okay. That's a good trade-off. I will do that. And I will save coffee for going to the airport and my birthday and we'll leave it for really special occasions. And that's fine. If that means that I can afford something else with that, uh, you know, I think, I think just kind of evaluating what you value most in your life, how you can add more of it. And if there is anything in your current spending that maybe isn't adding as much value as this other thing you might want to be adding in. That's a great way to look at it. Last year, I started a lot for my anxiety. I started doing regular massages and, and that's how I looked at it. I was like, okay, this is going to be an expense. I'm committed to it because there are a ton of benefits, especially for a person with super high anxiety. This is really good for me and for a person with super high stress. And I work out a lot. So there, there's a ton of benefit but I had to stop and think, okay, this is going to be an expense. So I want to be mindful of where I am being frivolous and how I can cut back on some of that to really make space for this expense and make it work for me. Yeah. And I think cutting back just on the, for the sake of cutting back, cutting back to save money is not very motivating, but if you put it in the context of what else can I afford, and it may be adding in a new expense, like a housekeeper, like a massage routine, that can be a great way to look at it. It could also be, I'm going to cut back so that I can put that extra money into a savings account for a vacation so that every year I know that I'm going to have the money set aside for a good vacation and I don't need to put it on a credit card. Or it could be, 
I have a ton of anxiety that I don't have a retirement account. And so maybe it's putting it towards that, but just kind of tapping into, you're not just saving it to like put it in a bank account and it just disappears, but really focusing on what are you getting by saving? And I know the idea of saving for retirement for most people is not that motivating. It is important. We should all be doing it. I'm going to say that. But if that's something that feels so far-fetched, let's start a little bit lower. Let's start with saving towards a vacation. Let's start with saving for something that is maybe a little bit more short-term, that's a little bit more fun, that's a little bit more tangible, and build that muscle. And then maybe in a year or two after you've gotten good at saving for short-term goals, then we can ramp up to retirement. Um, It's okay to not do all of the things from day one. I had a friend in my 20s that talked to me about putting back even the tiniest bit of money. And in your 20s, you're so young and like your whole life is in front of you. And it's very hard to really conceptualize the importance of those things because you have so many years to worry about it. It's easy to blow it off. Like, oh, I don't need to think about it. And I remember this friend of mine who was very financially smart And he told me then, he's like, if you just put back $50 a month starting right now, you would have X amount of dollars by whenever, you know, and it was like millions. And I was like, oh yeah, whatever. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm sitting here now 25 years later at 50 going, oh my gosh, I really wish I would have done that simple $50 a month and had been consistent with it. Like that's life changing and that's not a lot of money. It can be hard to make those good decisions in the moment. And it can also be hard to be, okay, you're 50 and you didn't do that. You can fill yourself with regret of the things you didn't do. The best time to start investing was when you were in your 20s. If you didn't do that, okay, the second best time is to start now. So you can definitely make a lot of progress at whatever age you're at. And, you know, don't let the mistakes of not having made more financially savvy decisions prevent you from, you know, going forward. I saw, I saw an Instagram reel of people chiming in and saying like, there's no point in me saving for retirement. That's never going to happen. You know, I'm in my early fifties and I mean, sure. It would have been better if you had started earlier, but you can still make a lot of progress at this point. And it's not, it's not a lost cause. It's not worth just kind of giving up on it at whatever point you're at now. For sure. And I would say that with everything, right? We say the same thing with recovery because every single one of us, when we get clean and sober, we all think, gosh, I wish I would have done this earlier. You know, like everybody, it doesn't (laughs) matter what age you can get sober at 15 and you'll still go, gosh, I wish I would have done this earlier. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I have a client getting sober at 72 and she's amazing. You know, of course she's saying the same thing. So it's just something we're going to feel no matter what, but don't let it hold you back. Don't let it stop exactly. you from starting, right, to do something. Exactly. So I want to ask you this because I have something I deal with a lot in my coaching life is, you know, what we call cognitive dissonance. So the dissonance is when, you know, you say one thing and you do another, you have an intention, but you don't follow through, you do something opposite. And it really creates a lot of confusion, right? Like you're sending yourself mixed messages, basically. And so a couple of years ago, I had a client that was like, I want to start saving money for something. I don't remember what he was saving for, but he had something specific and he wanted to start a savings account and start putting money back. And literally on our very next session, he came in 
And I'm like, oh, how's it going? Did you get your savings account open? He's like, oh my gosh, you're never going to believe this. I got the best deal on this trip to Mexico. And I decided to do that instead. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like I thought we had a plan. So again, that dissonance of I say I want to do this, but then I actually go do something completely the opposite. Is this something you see a lot in the financial world? Yes. I think some of it goes back to what I said before about there being some comfort in kind of reliving old habits. And I mean, I see this a lot with people who've paid off their credit cards. They Mm -hmm. were so excited. They are debt free. They're going to change the world now. They're a whole new person. And then those bad habits creep back in, like the motivation of the thing that they were working towards has subsided at this point. And it's hard to sustain it unless they really get clear on not just what the next goal is, but why that next goal is important. Um, I think there's also kind of a, you know, you had, you had this adrenaline getting towards the finish line and now, and now that is gone. I think that's part of it. Um, And and it can be hard to save for future goals. It, I think um, I read I read a study that people who feel less connected to their future selves have a harder time saving for the future. People who can envision what they're going to be like at an older age, you know, in when they're in retirement, if they have a clear vision of that version of themselves, it's much easier to save for that version of themselves. But if you feel really disconnected from your future self, it is really hard to make decisions in, you know, that benefit that future version of yourself. I feel like you just changed my life (laughs) (laughs) because when I was young, I didn't, you know, I was, I was an alcoholic, I was drunk and I didn't think I had a future. Like I didn't expect to live, certainly to be 50. I always assumed that I would be dead by 40. So, wow, I never thought about it like that, but that makes so much sense. And then now I've come so far in my journey in recovery and growing up as a person and really grown into a person that I love and admire and respect. Now it is so much easier and more empowering to think about caring for myself and what I want mm-hmm. that to look like, that future version and, and my future life, like what I want that to look like. That's crazy. I would have never thought about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, I had seen that before and then I read it in a textbook and I was like, oh, there is something very valid here. <laughs> yeah. And feels like the same thing that they say, you know, one of the big things that's been going around for a few years now is know your why. You have to know what your why is. Why is this important? Why am I working so hard for it? Why am I going to stay committed to it or dedicated to it? Because it does get hard. Everything gets hard. And figuring out finances and paying off debt, all of that is really hard too. But you have to understand the payoff and that it's going to be delayed gratification and get okay with that. <laughs> yeah. And it again, going back to the connecting to a future self and the why, I think I see a lot of clients who are maybe contributing bare minimum to their 401k because they know that that is what they should do, but they just can't feel any motivation to do any more than that because it feels like retire- they're never going to be able to afford the quality of retirement that they want. So what's the point in even trying when really, even if you 
didn't get to your goal amount, if you got close to it, that's going to be a much better retirement than if you didn't even try. Right. Uh, so I think, and and for people who identify as being bad with money, it's just not something you connect with. It, it's really hard to be motivated to do the things if you don't quite grasp why getting your back to taxes <laughs> really helps you going forward. Um, and especially with credit card payoff, I think so many people have that as a goal to pay off their credit cards. And that's a great goal. But if that is the extent of the, the goal, that's not very motivating. It's yeah. if it's just to be free of debt. For most people, um, you know, when trying to be motivated to work towards a goal, if your goal is to avoid something negative, that's not nearly as motivating as going towards something positive. So I always push my clients, if your goal is to be debt free, okay, cool. Why do you want to be debt free? What does being debt free allow you to change in your life? What does it allow you to work towards that doesn't feel attainable right now? And let's really focus on what is different about your life once you become debt free. So how do you manage this in couples? Like, here's what I hear all the time, and I'm not stereotyping. I'm just speaking from my experience. But what I deal with literally every day of my coaching life is clients who, in relationships or marriages, whatever, um, where the woman is spending and shopping and the man is freaking out and trying to control all the money. (laughs) (laughs) How do you deal with as a couple, if you have those different habits, like how do you navigate some of that to get more on the same page? So again, we are not taught about money and we're not taught how to talk about money in a very effective way. And I think those two kind of approaches to money, obviously that's in kind of a gender stereotypical way. I do see the reverse sometimes as well, but whoever is the more kind of analytical, looking at the numbers, that person has a very different way of communicating what they're seeing and why they're stressed. And the person who is the spender has a very different way of communicating why they're spending, what they're doing with their money, what like why they're using their money in one way and why the other person is using their money differently. And I think when we communicate in a way that makes sense to us, our partner just doesn't receive it in that same way. So I think it can be really helpful. What I really encourage couples to start with is talking about how money was talked about in their house growing up. Understanding, did they come from a house where money was you know, a scarcity? Did they come from a house where it was abundant and they didn't learn about it because they didn't have to because it just was a non-issue when they asked for money, it was given to them. I think just understanding kind of that dynamic, um, you know, what the actual dynamic about money was, but then also how their parents talked about money, how their parents talked to each other about money and just what models you saw. Because I think in relationships, we tend to replicate the model that we saw or we run away from it completely. We, we either um, try to mimic it or we try to, you know, be the complete opposite if we knew that it was really an unproductive and unhealthy, um, you know, model to be basing that off of. And so understanding what your partner saw and what they're modeling it after, I think can be really helpful. It may not change how you act or how they act, but just understanding why they act that way. Why, okay, you know, we're talking about maybe getting married or having a baby. 
And what, how did that play out in your parents' life? Did your dad get laid off at this particular time in your childhood? And now you have this fear that, well, my job is clearly, I'm clearly going to lose my job because my dad did. And that's the way things happen. And if you're replicate, if you're going off of this script that no one else has a copy of, like, that's where communication really, um, you know, is problematic. And interestingly, this is not a niche that I sought out, but I have quite a few um, female clients who see me individually, but they are either married or engaged or in a long-term partnership. Um, and they are keeping money separate in their relationship because they feel like they are bad at money and they don't want to bring their credit card debt or their bad habits to their partner who is good at money or at least has access to more money. And in all of the cases that I've seen, they've had very loving, supportive male partners who are not overtly trying to shame them, but money is easy, logical, analytical to the, their male partners, and they know that they cannot communicate in a way that's going to be effective. So they're coming to me to like, I want to get this fixed. <laughs> I want to, yeah. I want to like not feel like I'm a financial burden on the relationship. Um, so they see that they are not approaching money from the most healthy perspective and they want to work on that so that they can feel like a more equal member at least financially in their partnership. Yeah. And definitely that not feeling burdensome. You know, because I know in with my clients like that there's a lot of arguing about this topic, right? And so we're really working on the communication piece of that and the empathy and understanding where your person is coming from and and different we have different value on different things, right? We're not all going to match and have the same value on the same things. So yeah, really focusing on that communication piece, like that's huge. I never thought of doing, you know, really understanding like how you grew up, which is a, a huge part of the whole thing, but that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And then I think also when we tend to bring up money within a partnership, it's usually when we see something we don't like and um, we're bringing, we're kind of coming at it from like a micromanagey perspective of why are you spending so much on lunches out at work or whatever it might be. Um, whereas I find if instead of like, you know, kind of being critical of how your partner is either spending money or managing money, if you come at it from a perspective of curiosity, if you come at it from a perspective of where are we going, what are our goals going forward and talking about it in a way where it's less about kind of separating the two of you, but more bringing you together and working towards combined goals. A lot of times if you identify who are really excited about buying a new car, going on this vacation, okay, what do we think that's going to cost? Okay, how can we get there? Then your partner can generate their own ideas of changes that they can see rather than you judging their current expenses and saying, I think that these are frivolous and you should cut those. If you let your partner come up with their own ideas of what they think are worth cutting, they might pick the same ones, but then it's their idea. Or they might decide that in this example, lunches out at work are like my treat for the day and it makes me enjoy my job and I don't want to cut those. But here's what I could cut that didn't seem as overtly frivolous to you, but you know, is somewhere that adds you know, a little bit more marginal value, and I'd be willing to sacrifice that. So I think coming at it from a place of curiosity and focusing on shared goals is a good way to have more productive conversations within a partnership. Right. I think that's awesome. I love all of that. 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. I love this conversation. I really appreciate you with all the tips and advice you've given. I think it's incredibly valuable. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.